I always love the moment of silence before the sermon starts. Sometimes it just runs downhill from there. <laughs> I think it's one of the quietest times in our service that you can feel people just sort of ready and there's nothing going on. It's so precious. Feel the sweetness of that? Anyway, that's got nothing to do with what I want to talk about. Um, imagine a pre-human ancestor. Furry, lemur-like creature living a furtive life in the uh, primeval forest. And he sees something attractive. Food or maybe a potential sexual partner. And there's a wired-in instinct that just takes all the breadth of his vision and focuses right down on that food or that creature and prepares his body to move towards it. And then he sees something that's unattractive. Maybe it's a predator. And the same instinct zeroes in on that beast and prepares his body to get out of there. This instinct has an obvious evolutionary advantage. To be most effective, it has to be fast. To be fast, it has to be simple. To be simple, it doesn't say what to do about the food or the mate or the predator. It just says, this is good, figure it out. This is bad. Get out of here, figure it out. And notice that it directs all our awareness, all his awareness, out into the environment rather than inside and what he's feeling about it. And this is a good thing, because just imagine what that would be like. Oh, she's so lovely. I feel so good, and I was—I just feel warm and lovely. And Oh, it's really great. I like this. She's likely to move on before his DNA gets a chance to reproduce. Oh, there's that terrible... I was having a good day. I was feeling so great. Now I'm all tied up in knots and that... that oh, if he gets absorbed in what he's feeling, he's more likely to become lunch. So this instinct is the opposite of, um, of introspection. Focuses everything out there. We humans have such an instinct. I don't have scientific data as to its, uh, its origins, but it behaves as if these speculations are true. It is fast, it is simple, it is pre-verbal, it is pre-conceptual, and it directs all our attention away from what's going on inside and out there into the environment. And we have many, many, many names for it. Desire, attraction, fixation, craving, repulsion, fear, grumpiness, anger. It's the feeling that gives rise to the thought, I like this, I don't like that. I want more. Get me out of here. But again, notice that the instinct itself is precognitive. And it arises so quickly out of our neural wiring that it just, we can't control it. It just happens. It just arises. So perhaps a better name for it is having our buttons pushed. Or getting hooked. Or even the devil made me do it. The Tibetan word for it is shinpa, or shinpa, depending on the dialect. Uh, are there people here who are familiar with 
Pema Chodron in her writings. So you may have come across Shempa. She writes about it. But in the earliest Buddhist text, it is called uh, Tana. T-A-N-H-A, Tana. Um, I always think Tana sounds like a trumpet flourish. Tana. Tana is the uh, so-called second noble truth. First noble truth, um, first teachings of the Buddha. First noble truth is that life has suffering. Anybody here not ever suffered? So that seems to be true. And he said we must learn about this. And the second noble truth, if if we learn about suffering, we begin to see that our experience of difficulty arises out of this instinctual tightening. And the Buddha said, in terms of what we do with this, is we relax it. It needs to be relaxed. And if we do relax it, then the third noble truth is we experience a cessation of suffering, increase in well-being. So Lynn and Wendy invited me to come and speak to you a little about Buddhism. Uh, Tana is, um, is very, very central to what the Buddha taught. Second noble truth, uh, and there's a little bit of Tana in each phase of, if you heard of dependent origination, that familiar term. So dependent origination is actually the, uh, the core of what the Buddha taught. He said, if you understand dependent origination, you understand everything I taught. What it says is that there is suffering, but suffering arises because of certain conditions. And those conditions arise because of other conditions. And those arise because of other conditions. So there's this link of causations. And so dependent origination lays that out. And there's a little bit of tana in each of those linkages, as well as being one of the main phases of it. So I could go on and talk like this um, all morning. I'm a Buddhist geek, after all. Um, But uh, as you can see, this begins to sound kind of abstract and theoretical very quickly. So what I would like to do uh, this morning is to uh, take this notion of Tana, this actual thing we experience, and frame it in a way that relates right to the nitty-gritty of our everyday life. And to do this, I want to organize what I'm saying around this very simple question. How do we thrive during difficult times? Anybody ever have a difficult time? How do we thrive? Not how do we manage, not how do we get by, not how do we muddle through, not how do we make lemonade out of lemons, but how do we actually thrive during hard times? How do we navigate rough waters in ways that... um, allow our lives to be enriched and our hearts to be open. And I think Tana is the key to unlocking that question. But since the instinct, since this instinctual tightening directs all our attention out there, it's very difficult to see it. It's so effective at doing that. So I want to begin this morning by talking about just recognizing this instinct in ways that arises in our life. And then I'll talk a little bit about some of the things that trigger it, and that will set the stage for we can address um, what for me is, is a really important question. How do we release and relax that so that our lives can feel enriched even during hard times? Um, and this is actually 
there's an expanded version of this. It's chapter 5 in my book on Buddha's map, if you're interested. That, it's in the back. Um, but, so we'll start with just recognizing this instinct as it arises. Searching for it is a little bit like my boys uh, searching for Easter eggs. They would run out of the house on Easter morning and they would look for Easter eggs and they would look you know, under rocks and behind trees and inside wooden boxes and they would find none. My wife and I and the Easter Bunny always had the Easter eggs in plain sight. Put a yellow one in a patch of yellow flowers, a green one right in the middle of a tuft of green grass, a red one in the red truck in the sandbox. So they were all clearly visible but placed in a way that they blended in with the environment. And so my boys in their excitement would overlook the obvious. But as soon as they caught on, they would stop and look around and they would begin to see them everywhere. Tana is like that. It is everywhere. But since it directs our attention away from it, we miss it. But if we stop and just open up and look around, we see it everywhere. You're driving down the road. Some car pulls in front of you and cuts you off. Your hands tighten on the steering wheel. That's Tana. So reflexive. You're walking down the sidewalk, talking on your cell phone, and you go to cross the street, and you continue your conversation, and without even thinking about it, your eyes just dart up and down the street to check for traffic danger. That's Tana. That's Tana. That uh, directs your attention that way. I had um, stopped off in the grocery store on the way home once. I just had three or four things to pick up. And I got them and I had, had them in my cart. And as I was heading for the checkout lines, there were about five or six checkout lines that were open. And all of them had three or four carts lined up there, except for one. It was empty. And coming the other way was a woman with an overflowing cart, just packed. Somehow my pace just picked up. Oh, did I cut you off? I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. You don't have... That was Tanah. <laughs> I was thinking about going to bed early one night. I was tired. Um, but before I said anything, my wife said that she wanted to check her email on the computer in the bedroom. And I said, oh, I'll, I'll just stretch out in the other room for a few minutes. And she said, no, I don't want to keep you up. You go ahead. I'll check in the morning. Sounds very genteel, doesn't it? But if you had heard the actual conversation, you would have noted a kind of a poutiness in my voice and a little bit of irritation in hers. That was Tana. That was Tana. When you start seeing Tana in your life, you know you are in good company. The Dalai Lama, a number of years ago, was at a conference in Los Angeles. And the uh, hotel where he was staying and the conference center were about 10 blocks apart. So there was somebody that drove him back and forth every day. And about five of these blocks, about half of the blocks, were filled with electronic stores. And for those of you who know the Dalai Lama, he's always been fascinated with Western technology. 
So when the conference opened one morning, he stood up in front of everybody before he started his remarks, and he said, you know, driving here this morning, I was looking out the window, and I wanted things without even knowing what they were. (laughs) That's Tanah. That's that instinctual tightening. The, The tightening, it feels like an urge or a draw or a tug. And it's actually uncomfortable. It gets our attention by creating attention inside and then pushing us to do something about it out there. And if there's nothing to be done, then we're left with a kind of an unnamed edginess that is just begging for some kind of resolution. And while the instinct was undoubtedly very, very helpful when we're living in primal situations, and it's helpful today in... Uh, simple situations. And the nuances and complexities of modern life, it's often not that helpful. Because what it does is it tends to get us to latch on to some little detail of a problem rather than seeing the larger context. And there are many of the problems that we face today that you really have to be able to take to the whole context to be effective with them. And to a greater or lesser degree, I think it touches, as I said before, just about every aspect of our life. So do you have a sense of that feeling, that little tug, the tightening of the... You might be in a conversation with somebody, this free-flowing, gentle conversation, and suddenly her eyes cloud up, and you say, what's the matter? Did I say something wrong? She says, no, nothing. I have to go. You just seem to not... So you know all those different flavors. Good. So um, let's turn from what it feels like from recognizing it to what triggers it. Some of the things that trigger this tightening are obvious. Job difficulties, economic problems, difficulty with kids, disease, death of a loved one, elections that don't go the way we like, political inanity. Some of the triggers, though, are a lot less obvious, very subtle. Loneliness, quiet annoyance, whispers of worries, loss of meaning, purposelessness, just a subtle yearning to, mm, to have something. Oh, I can't wait for that vacation. Very quiet. So what are some of the what are some of the stresses and strains? What are some of the things that get you hooked? Push your buttons a little bit, irritate you a little. What I would like to do is just see if we can make a list of uh, some of the things that trigger this instinctual tightening. You don't have to explain them. Just call that one. Gaining weight. No, being late. Being late. So we got two of them for one. <laughs> <laughs> Not hearing correctly. There's three. I could feel this little. Oh my goodness! I heard him wrong. Parents. 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 Disrespectful people. Disrespectful people. Entitled people. Entitled people. Having to repeat my name. Having to repeat my name. Criticism. 
Criticism. Criticism. Being around bigots. Being around bigots. Waking up at 3 a.m. Waking up at 3 a.m. Yeah, and all you need to do is relax and then everything tightens up. <sighs> Not being understood. Not being understood. That's a big one. Too much homework. Too much homework. <laughs> <laughs> Not being able to get the computer to do what you want it to. Actually, it's interesting. It's wanting the computer to do what you want it to is actually when it starts, but we flip it around, right? We didn't care what it did. It wouldn't be a problem. Good luck with that. You've got it, right? So the question is, what do we do about this? What do we do with these things? So remember this instinct, um, this tightening, focuses our attention outward into the world. Sometimes this is wise. We're Unitarian Universalists here, right? We believe that it's important to be able to deal with the world rather than withdraw from it. We don't have very many monastics in our ranks. So we embrace the interdependent web. We like to deal with issues on their own terms. So if we're sick or injured, rather than just hoping and praying, we go to the doctor, consult a healthcare worker, Look at diet, exercise, rest. Things that deal with the body on their own terms. That's usually our first strategy. If our job is in trouble, talk to the boss. Network. Education, maybe get more job skills. If a relationship is on the skids, our preferred first action is usually talking to a person or maybe consulting with a wise friend if it feels really confusing seeking out a minister, a counselor support group so if these strategies solve the problem that's great we cure the disease, we find a job we resolve our kids up streperousness buy that piece of music we've been yearning for But there are times when there is no solution. We do what we can, but the problem lingers. When I first moved to Sacramento in in 2000, I was called to be the lead minister at the Unitarian Universalist Society in Sacramento. When I moved out that summer, our youngest son, Damon, was just about to go into his senior year of high school. And he had been in this charter school that he had helped found and poured his heart into. So he and my wife stayed in Massachusetts the first year, and I came out here alone. And mostly it was okay. I mean, I missed them, but I was busy getting to know a new congregation, and I knew that uh, family separation was temporary. Still, Friday nights were hard. Friday nights had been family time. Friday nights we used to play board games or go to a movie or just hang out together. So as twilight began to settle in on Friday afternoon, I would often feel this um, aching in my chest. I would call them and talk to them on the phone, but 
wasn't really the same. Sometimes the loneliness felt intolerable. Some difficulties resist being fixed. There may be no adequate jobs around. The disease may not have a cure. We may not have the power to solve the political scene. The loved one who died just isn't coming back. Sometimes our kids' problems have uh, have no clear solution. These are the truly difficult times. What do we do with these? What do we do with these? There are three popular strategies for dealing with intractable problems. Grab something, push something away, or spacing out. And these aren't a modern invention. The Buddha talked about them. Desire, aversion, confusion. So let's look at each of these uh, these three strategies. The first one is to grasp for things, to grab for things, or to become needy. This um, unresolved tightening feels like a hunger or a thirst uh, or a kind of emptiness inside, and so we may look for something to fill the void. I remember when I was in college and had broken up with a girlfriend, and I was very upset about it, and I couldn't figure out what to do. So I went out and I bought a Simon and Garfunkel record album. The Bridge Over Troubled Waters. And it was comforting. It was comforting. Many people get into patterns of shopping as a way of trying to feel better. Or maybe rather than look for things, we, we look for experiences to have. So when I was at first in Sacramento, sometimes I went to a movie you know, to get through a lonely evening. There's a variation on this strategy. Rather than us grab for something, we try to get somebody to do something for us. We try to control other people as a way of feeling better. Oh, we don't do that. But we all know somebody who does, right? Sometimes these, these strategies are soothing and we relax. It seemed to help a little bit. But if it doesn't address the true hunger, then it really has no lasting benefit. The second strategy is uh, for coping with intractable problems is the opposite. Rather than try to grab hold of things, we try to push things away or we become irritable or angry. We've all seen this in others and we've all felt it in ourselves. We snap at people more easily We find ourselves being less tolerant of their foibles, lose our temper, criticize more readily. Things that used to roll off our back now kind of get under our skin. And expressing this irritation can bleed off some of the tension. But if it doesn't solve the real problem, then it really has no real benefit to it, no lasting benefit. The third strategy is to space out. There's nothing I can do, so I'm just not going to think about it. Bye-bye. I'm just... We stay busy. 
medicate ourselves with alcohol, or just don't pay attention to how lousy we feel inside. We numb out. And this can actually, for short-term issues, sometimes can be helpful. But for long-term issues, it's disastrous. It's disastrous. It can leave us vulnerable to all kinds of addictions. I've worked as a psychotherapist on and off over the years. And most of my clients, when they come to me, have been using one or some combination of these strategies until they found they just weren't working so well anymore. So my job was to listen to them very deeply so that together we might figure out a better way that they could deepen their lives. And when I um, heard their stories, it didn't surprise me that they felt messed up. What amazed me and what continues to amaze me is that we all are not locked up on the back ward of the psychiatric hospital. (laughs) If you listen deeply to what so many of us have lived through in our childhood and adult years, it is amazing that we are as healthy as we are. The human spirit is incredibly resilient. It's amazing the depth of pain and suffering that we can experience and come through, maybe hurting, but still come through with hearts and minds that are open and supple and alive. It's just amazing. But there's one thing that brings us down more quickly than anything else. that makes us crash and burn more rapidly than anything else. Isolation. Isolation. When we aren't alone, our natural wisdom and compassion and kindness can flow even during very difficult times. And there's one person whose good attention we need more than anyone else's. It's the person we spend the most time with night and day. Ourselves. Ourselves. And when we are busy grasping for things, being irritated at others, or spacing out, we are not truly present with ourselves. We've abandoned our hurt, our grief, our loneliness, our suffering. We've abandoned ourselves. So if we want to thrive during difficult times, it is so important, it is critically important that we learn to be present with ourselves, regardless of what's going on, to be present more and more and more. I remember one Friday evening in my apartment, I talked to my wife Erica and Damon on the phone. I thought about going to a movie, but that seemed empty. I could have called some people in Sacramento, but that wasn't quite the same. I put on some music which both soothed and stimulated my loneliness. And then I found myself pacing around my little apartment, from the living room to the kitchen to the bedroom and back, just round and round and round, getting more frantic as, as it just sunk in, there was nothing I could do to assuage this aching that I was feeling inside. There was nowhere I could run. And finally I got it, and I just 
stopped and I stood still. I remember standing there right in the middle of my living room, just standing there. And I realized that at that very moment, just as in this moment, there are and there there were and there are now millions of people around the planet who are feeling just as lonely as I was. There were hundreds of millions of people dealing with the death of of loved ones. There are countless numbers of people worrying about how they're going to make ends meet, worrying about their kids, afraid of diseases, cowering before violence. And most of them aren't doing anything wrong. Things just don't work out in this world sometimes. The first noble truth. There is suffering here. Sometimes things just don't work out. We all die. Society does us an incredible disservice by reassuring us that we are the captains of our ship. We are the directors of our fate. We are the controllers of our future. That is nuts. It's bogus. It's crazy. We have some influence. We have some influence. But bad things happen to good people all the time. Standing alone in my living room, I thought, oh, yeah, right, that's what the Buddha taught. Life is like this sometimes. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not bad for feeling bad. Stuff happens. So I stopped running from the loneliness. And I just sat down in a chair and felt it. I didn't try to talk myself into or out of anything. I was just present. And you know what? It felt awful. (laughs) It really felt awful. But at least I had myself. At least I had one friend in that room. Me. And with that, the loneliness began to soften just a little bit. It didn't go away, to be sure. But since I wasn't fighting it anymore, it began to spread out and get thinner, larger, and but not quite as intense. And as that happened, I began to feel poignant and moist and alive, rather than just dry, dusty, and barren. If we want to thrive during difficult times, it is so important to learn to recognize this instinctual response on its own terms. It's not a thought. It's not a concept. It is a wired and pre-verbal, pre-conceptual, biological reflex. Mental, emotional, and sometimes physical tightening. And it focuses all our faculties out there. It's a very powerful instinct, and it is stupid. If there is no solution, the instinct does not know how to let go. It doesn't. We can lie awake there at night thinking about our kids, or our relationship, or our job, in this endless loop of repetitive thoughts. Anybody here done that? Anybody here not done that? <laughs> In these cases, it is so important to learn 
to bring our awareness inward to see this inner holding directly. Because as we see it fully, it tends to relax. Just the process of seeing it tends to... It's like you make a tight fist. If it's numb, it'll stay tight for a long time. When you really feel the aching in it, it just automatically starts to soften. Or we can invite it to soften. It feels like um, feels like what you do with a with your child when they wake up from a nightmare. You don't try to talk them out of the bad dream. You just sit there. You just be present. You don't try to. Uh, so as we, as we sit with this inner tightness, we don't try to necessarily stop the swirl of emotions and thoughts. We just stay present. Very very simple. But it is so difficult because it goes against the wired in instinct. So if you do this, it's very important to be gentle, kind, and patient with yourself. More difficult than we might think. But as we begin to relax this inner tautness, we're not going to start thriving overnight. But without that tension, the spinning emotions and thoughts start to run out of gas. And they start to slow down a little bit. And with this, something deeply mysterious and deeply human begins to emerge. We notice a poignant well-being that is not dependent on fixing anything. We notice a, a kind of wholeness way down that's always been there, a kind of a wholeness that is not dependent on us being in control of anything. Some people call this well-being God, the divine spirit. Others call it human essence or Buddha nature. It doesn't make any difference what we call it. It is preverable and preconceptual. We just notice this elusive holding and allow it to notice it in a friendly way and allow it to soften. And this doesn't make us transcend the world or space out in some different realm, but it does give us the courage, the heart, and the patience to come back into this world and into our lives and do what's reasonable for ourselves and our fellow beings. And as we do this, we begin to recognize that we may not be this tiny peach pit of a self that we thought we were, this little small self, because without that tension, the sense of self just begins to kind of expand and then soften and even dissolve a little bit. It just begins to soften and spread out. And with this, we are truly on a path towards thriving, even in very difficult times. So shall we try it for just a few minutes? So I'm going to invite you into uh, a short period of quiet. I'll do a little bit of a guided meditation. And then... 
we will come out of this uh, singing the ocean refuses no river. So I invite you to close your eyes or just letting them, let them come to rest. And to let your awareness drift inwards in a very simple way. Let's see what's going on here. See if there's any tightness, tension in your body, edginess in your emotions, holding in the mind. And if so, don't try to change anything. If your thoughts are rambling or your attention is wandering, just let them ramble and wander. Just notice any tightness and invite it to soften. And if there is none, that's great. Just notice the peace and well-being and spaciousness and let it radiate naturally from you. If you can feel your connection through the hands to the other people and out into the room. And even more quietly further than that. For the sake of the healing of our lives, the health of our families, the well-being of this planet that we share, May we learn to trust more and more deeply that quiet, still, luminous wholeness that is deep inside us, just waiting for us to relax into it. May it be so.